Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, The Good Kind of Worthless. It's based upon the lectionary readings for November 15th, 2020. For to all those who have, more will be given. They will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are the chilling words that end the parable of the talents, our gospel reading for this 24th Sunday after Pentecost. No doubt you know the story. A wealthy man summons three of his slaves and entrusts them with talents. Then he goes away for a long time. While he's gone, two of his slaves invest the money they've been given and make huge profits for their master. The third slave, meanwhile, digs a hole in the ground and buries the single talent that was given to him. When the master returns, the slaves who've turned a profit are commended, gifted with more wealth, and invited to enter into the joy of their master. But the third slave is called wicked, lazy, and worthless, and cast into the outer darkness. This is a story we usually associate with stewardship, as in, our master, God, has entrusted each one of us with talents, money, assets, abilities, strengths, and God expects us to invest those talents boldly and creatively for the sake of the kingdom. If we do so, God will praise and reward us accordingly. But if we bury our talents, refusing to invest them as God desires, God will consider us worthless stewards, and we will suffer the unpleasant consequences of our master's displeasure. In case it isn't obvious already, I'm not fond of this all-too-common interpretation. I worry about the unexamined assumption at its heart, the assumption that the slave master in the story is God. As Episcopal priest Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, how you hear a parable has a lot to do with where you are hearing it from. If we are okay with descriptions of God that render God, even metaphorically, as a harsh and punitive slave master, then where exactly are we located vis-a-vis the gospel story? Who are we inadvertently erasing or harming for the sake of a tidy sermon series on tithes and offerings? What histories, legacies, and communities are we sidelining when we refuse to interrogate toxic representations of the divine. For me, the metaphor of God as wealthy slave master doesn't align with the gracious and justice-oriented God Jesus describes throughout the Gospels, the God who privileges the poor, blesses the meek, frees the prisoner, feeds the hungry, clothes the naked, liberates the slave, and protects the orphan. I can't reconcile the God Jesus incarnates among the peasant multitudes with a greedy estate owner who reaps where he doesn't sow and gathers where he doesn't scatter. And I don't recognize the kingdom of God in a story where those who have plenty receive still more, while those who have close to nothing lose even the little they have, and then face God's wrath on top of those losses. So what should we do with this parable? How shall we read it? This past week, as I wrestled with these questions, I had a conversation with my son, who often asks me what gospel texts I'm working on for my next JWJ essay. I read him the parable of the talents, fully expecting him to hate it, and he astonished me with his reaction. That's a great passage, he said. It sums up everything Christianity is about. I love it. Baffled, I asked him what exactly he loved. Oh, isn't it obvious? I love how the third slave is the hero of the story. 
Needless to say, my son's reaction to the parable sent me down a different research path than I might otherwise have taken. As it turns out, it is very possible to read the third slave as the hero of the story. Moreover, I think the story makes more sense, and aligns more beautifully with the God Jesus describes in the Gospels, if we read it this way. Specifically, I think the parable works better if we read it descriptively rather than prescriptively. What if the parable is not about a punishing God at all? What if it's about us? What if it's about life on earth as it is, here and now? I've drawn what follows from New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine, who asks us to consider what parables do rather than what they mean, and from the liberationist work of New Testament professor William Herzog. For his full treatment of this parable, see his 1994 book, Parables as Subversive Speech, Jesus as Pedagogue of the Oppressed. First, some context. In Jesus' day, talents were not coins or small wads of cash. They were hefty, precious metals, usually gold or silver, that weighed somewhere between 80 and 130 pounds. A single talent was worth approximately 20 years of an ordinary laborer's wages. In other words, a talent represented a staggering amount of money to Jesus' peasant audience, an unthinkable lottery jackpot sum that only the wealthiest elite might possess. How did the elite amass that kind of wealth? They lent money to the farming poor at exorbitant interest and systematically stripped those debtors of their land. Often the people who took such loans, at rates between 60 and 200 percent, did so out of desperation, putting their fields up as collateral in last-ditch efforts to save their livelihoods. Inevitably, their efforts would fail. Drought would hit, or a debtor would grow ill, or a crop would yield too little. At that point, the staggering interest rates a farmer agreed to would kick in and force foreclosure, and the poor man would have no choice but to surrender his ancestral land, watch as the wealthy elite repurposed his fields for profit, and join the multitudes of landless day laborers who wouldn't know from day to day where their bread would come from. This, Herzog writes, is a situation Jesus describes in the parable of the talents. The three slaves in the story are the wealthy master's retainers or household bureaucrats, essentially the middlemen who oversee the land and the workers, collect the debts, and keep the profits coming while the master travels on business. It is understood by everyone involved that the slaves are free to make a little extra on the side by charging the farmers additional fees or interest, as long as they keep the money flowing for their master. In this scenario, the slaves' status, wealth, and well-being are inextricably tied to the master's. The more money they make for him, the better and more comfortable their own lives become. What happens when we read the parable of the talents through the cultural and economic lens Herzog offers? A member of the wealthy 1% gives three of his most trusted workers a jackpot to play with. They know the rules. The more they make for the boss, the more they'll get to keep for themselves. The name of the game is exploitation, no questions asked, and the only rule is turn a profit, turn as huge a profit as possible. Two of the slaves do exactly as they're told. They take their talents out into the world and double them on the backs of the poor. Who knows how many fields they seize, how many farmers they impoverish, how many families they destroy. It doesn't matter, they fulfill the bottom line. They make a profit. When the master returns and sees what they've accomplished on his behalf, he's thrilled. He invites the two enterprising slaves to enter into his joy, the joy of further wealth, further profit, further exploitation. But the third slave? The third slave in the story opts out. <clears throat> he decides that his master's character is greedy and corrupt, and that he no longer wants to participate in a dishonest system of gain, a system based on oppression and injustice. Knowing full well what it will cost him, the slave buries the heavy talent in the earth. 
he hides it, literally taking it out of circulation, putting it where it will do no further harm to the poor. Is it any surprise that the master abuses and banishes the third slave when he returns from his journey? In Herzog's words, the slave is more than a quiet hero, he is a whistleblower. At great cost to himself, he names the exploitation, the same exploitation he colluded in and benefited from for years. He relinquishes his claim on wealth and comfort, calls out the master's greed and rapacity. I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed, and accepts the ostracism and poverty that must follow from his choice. My son described this parable as a summation of what Christianity is all about, and I'm still pondering that possibility. What if he's on to something? Maybe this isn't a parable about the coming kingdom of God. Maybe this is a parable about the world we occupy right now. A parable about what faithfulness looks like in hard, hidden places. A parable about speaking truth to power. A parable about opting out of systems of oppression and exploitation, even and especially when we are accustomed to benefiting from such systems. A parable about interrupting business as usual for the sake of justice and mercy. A parable about turning reality upside down in the name of love. A parable about saying, enough is enough when it comes to the abuse and marginalization of the world's most vulnerable people. Does the work sound too difficult? Too risky? Does this parable do too much? Provoke too much? Prod too hard? Maybe. But consider this. Jesus asks nothing of us that he has not done himself. Just days after telling this parable, he was cast into the outer darkness of crucifixion, torment, and death. Like the third slave, he was deemed worthless and expendable by the people who wielded power and influence in his day. Like the third slave's costly talent, he was buried in a rock-hewn tomb. There is a good kind of worthless in the economy of God. May we find the courage to embody it. For books this week, Dan reviews The Words of My Father, Love and Pain in Palestine by Yusuf Bashir. This memoir by the Palestinian-American Yusuf Bashir reminded me of the aphorism that's attributed to Stalin, that whereas a million deaths is a statistic, a single death is a tragedy. We've seen and heard so much about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that it's hard to remember that behind all the anonymous statistics, there is a personal story. Bashir tells us his family story about growing up in the Gaza Strip, which has been under Israeli military rule since 1967. As the subtitle suggests, this is a story of both pain and inspiration. For at least 300 years, Bashir's family owned a plot of land along the Mediterranean Sea in a town that was named after a 4th century monastery. His father Khalil loved that land as much as he loved his wife, says the son Yusuf. Never would he leave that land under any circumstances. In addition to his love for his land, Khalil was an eternal optimist full of moral idealism. He refused to cave into despair. He repudiated all violence, for in his view, violence only begot more violence. This moral idealism was sorely tested when the settlers moved in, and when the Israeli soldiers set up command posts and guard towers on their land, and when they even occupied their house for more than two years. Try to picture the tanks, the bulldozers, the soldiers, the helicopters, and the many humiliations. When Yusuf was 15, he took a bullet in his back while standing in his front yard. He then faced a choice between understandable rage or his father's commitment to peaceful coexistence. 
While in rehab for six months in Tel Aviv, he says that the Israeli nurses who treated him were like angels. It was a turning point when he discovered his own humanity. To know that my apparent enemies were also human was my father's most important gift to me. For similar lament from a Jewish perspective, see my review of the book by Yossi Klein Halevi, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, which is a series of imaginary letters written to Halevi's Palestinian neighbor. For films this week, Dan reviews Honeyland. This remarkable documentary film is what I would call an ethnographic delight. It follows the daily life of a woman named Hatidzi Moratova, who is a wild beekeeper in a remote village called Bekir Lija. The movie premiered at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival, where it was the only film to win three awards. At the 2020 Oscars, it was nominated for Best Documentary and Best Foreign Film. Without any external narration or voiceover, there are really four stories here. The first is the scenery of the remote mountains of northern Macedonia, which alone would make the film worth watching. Then, we watch how Hatitza tends her bees, collects the honey, and takes a train to sell it in the market of Skopje, four hours away. The third story shows how tenderly she cares for her partly blind 85-year-old mother, who has been bedridden for four years. And this in a setting that is unimaginably primitive, no running water or electricity. Finally, trouble brews when a bumbling nomad named Hussein, along with his family of seven kids and a hundred cattle, moves his trailer onto the adjacent property. Amidst all of the squalor, hardship, and disruption, Titsa radiates an authentic sense of human dignity that is beautiful to behold. In an interesting backstory, the directors, Tamara Kordevska and Lubomir Stefanov, collected over 400 hours of footage across three years of filming, then edited down to this 90-minute gem. I watched this film on Amazon Streaming. Lastly, for poetry this week, Prayer for Overcoming Indifference by Kaim Stern. For the sin of silence, for the sin of indifference, for the secret complicity of the neutral, for the closing of borders, for the washing of hands, for the crime of indifference, for the sin of silence, for the closing of borders, for all that was done, for all that was not done. Let there be no forgetfulness before the throne of God. Let there be remembrance within the human heart, and let there at last be forgiveness when your children, O God, are free and at peace. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for November 15th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.